book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, and we'll be reading the middle part of this chapter as uh, we continue to work through this book of Acts, and we come to this portion of the book of Acts, and we'll share a message with you today that I've titled, Jesus According to Paul. And we'll look at Acts chapter 13, and in a few moments we'll be reading verses 13 through verse 41. If you were to list the most well-known people that are in the Bible, I wonder what names would be in the top two or three slots of that list for you. Now obviously, since we're in a church setting, the first name that should be on that would be whose name? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, well, we got that one. But after that, I wonder... What names would we place on our list? One of those names would probably be the Apostle Paul. Because in the New Testament of the 27 books that comprise that New Testament, Paul definitely wrote 13 of those books. 48% of your New Testament is written by this man that we call Paul. In fact, when you look at the names of people who are referenced in Scripture, in that top 10 list of names who are referenced, Jesus is the name that's most often referenced. So you got nine more on that list, and of those nine, eight of those are in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And then you've got coming in at number nine on that list of, of the ninth most often referenced name in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. You cannot study your New Testament without repeatedly encountering Paul. It's it's Paul that the Holy Spirit used to pen some of the passages that we Christians most love and cherish. It's Paul who said, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It was Paul who said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. It was Paul who said, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was Paul who said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Paul knew something about Jesus. But that wasn't always the way it was in his life. In fact, Paul was just the opposite of what we see, how we, how we see him in the New Testament before he came to faith in Christ. Paul is someone who went from persecuting churches to planting churches. He went from physically arresting followers of Jesus to spiritually arresting those who had yet to place their faith in Jesus. He was transformed from being used to destroy the work of the Savior, and then God used him to start dismantling the work of Satan. Paul went from being openly opposed to Christ to being openly obsessed with Christ. Paul was someone, when he wrote one of those famous verses, Romans chapter 12, when Paul said to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the new year of Paul is speaking from experience. Paul went through 
through a, a transformation. Paul went through a metamorphosis in his life, and he was transformed, and that means that it, the, not just his habits changed, but the very essence of who he was was transformed by the power of Jesus. When he has his come to Jesus' meeting in Acts chapter 9, he was transformed and God began to do a work in him so that God could do a work through him. That's how God always operates. God must do a work in us before God does a work through us. And that's certainly what he did in the life of Paul. As we arrive in Acts chapter 13, Paul is among the the first people to be used by God to carry the gospel from where it originated to go across the Mediterranean Sea and to an island full of people who don't follow Jesus. He is the first called and commissioned missionary who crosses cultures to proclaim the message of Christ. So here's the setting as we get into Acts chapter 13. Paul and his pals have shared the gospel all through Cyprus and now they're headed to their next destination. Acts 13, look at what it says in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now look, you cannot do a series on Acts or Paul without having a map. So just look at what's happened as this, this thus far, and I apologize, this projector's going to get fixed. We got it ordered. So if you got a crick in your neck from looking, well, just a couple more weeks and the crick will be gone, okay? But, but Paul starts over here, and now he's gone through Cyprus. He's He's marched through that island, and now in our text today, he's going to go up into this new region where God's called him to go to this, to this Antioch, a different Antioch place than where he started, to carry the gospel with him. Our text continues in verse 15. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Never ask a preacher to speak. <laughs> they said, Paul, if you got a word, say it. And Paul said, oh, I got a word. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them. Aren't you glad God puts up with us? He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before his coming, John had had proclaimed a a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had been carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... That through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest what is said of the prophets should come about. Look you scoffers and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. In all likelihood, this sermon by Paul was not the first one he preached. And in, in, in all likelihood, we have really no, no reason to not believe that as he went all through that island of Cyprus, Paul continually preached. But this is his first recorded sermon. This is the first message that was written down that Paul spoke. And the subject of this sermon is the object of his obsession, and that is Jesus Christ. And this is the first of many sermons and letters that Paul's going to share about Jesus. And so I want us to look at this first recorded message from the Apostle Paul. And I want us to understand what he has to say to us about who Jesus is because it's important for us, to st- uh, for us to understand who Jesus is, and Paul helps us. Now, Paul wasn't a Baptist preacher, but I am, and so I figured his sermon to come to about three points, because if it doesn't have three points, it's not a sermon worth preaching. That's what we're taught in seminary, okay? So the, here's the three points of Paul's sermon about Jesus. First is this, Jesus is the culmination of history. 
Paul in his sermon teaches us that Jesus is the culmination of history. What is the purpose of history? Is history just a collection of unrelated events over a period of time, a series of dots that aren't really connected to anything? Is history designed to show us a set of events or people as a reminder of things that we should not do and things that we should do, of mistakes we should avoid and successes we should try to achieve? Is history just a a series of events designed to teach us how we got to where we are today and where we will be if we continue the course in the future? I don't really know how to answer that question from the academic world or the philosophical world, but I know how Paul answered that question. I know how Paul saw it from the heavenly perspective. According to Paul, the heavenly purpose of history is tied to the purpose of God. And for Paul, the purpose of God is to redeem fallen people and to reclaim what is his and to build his eternal kingdom. And what Paul does in his sermon is he presents a concise historical narrative of God's plan. He shows us that what God did in the past was done in preparation for the arrival of Jesus Christ who would fulfill the purpose of God by becoming the means through which God will redeem fallen man and reclaim what is his as he builds his eternal kingdom even while we are still on this earth. In fact, look at what Paul said. I'll summarize it. In verse 17, he said that God chose the fathers, that he blessed his people during their time in Egypt, and ultimately he freed his people from that bondage in Egypt. And then those people, verse 18 and 19, those people were sinful. They were stubborn. You know any sinful, stubborn people? Are you sitting on one right now? Are you, you are one of those people? Well, not much has changed since the Old Testament times because those people were still sinful and stubborn, and they they spent four decades wandering in the wilderness because they had disobeyed God. But God was patient with them and God provided for them so that they still, even though they had a sin problem in verses 20, 21, 22, they, they still had this sin problem. God provided judges to deliver them out of the trouble they got themselves into. They demanded a king and so God gave them a king, King Saul, and then God gave them King David. Remember, the purpose of The heavenly purpose of history is tied to the purpose of God. So God gave them King David, not because David was all that, but because of that Jesus was going to come from the lineage of David. And so David becomes their king. And according to verse 23, through David's lineage, God brought Jesus and Jesus would solve the sin problem by redeeming people from their sin and restoring their relationship with God. Look very closely at what Paul is teaching us. The history with which Paul 
was familiar culminated in Jesus Christ. And when the times in which we live our history and when the times yet to come arrive and when they become history, it too will culminate in Jesus Christ. History is moving toward an end that will culminate in Jesus Christ. This is why the book of Revelation, Jesus proclaims to us in Revelation chapter one and verse eight. I am Alpha and I am Omega, says the Lord God. I am he who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last and everything in between. And what our Bible teaches us is that one day Jesus is going to return in the air according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to plant his feet physically upon this earth according to Zechariah chapter 14 and he's going to wage a war with Satan himself and all the enemies of God and Jesus our Bible teaches us will be victorious and thereafter he will establish his permanent kingdom on a brand new earth and we will spend eternity in his presence enjoying his kingdom. The past history is tied up in Jesus. This present history is being tied up in Jesus and the future history is going to be tied up in Jesus because Jesus is the culmination of history. It is His story. It is His story. Big deal, Pastor. What difference does that make? How does Jesus being the culmination of history impact my life today? Here's how it impacts your life. Because Jesus is the culmination of history, we can rest in God's sovereignty, knowing that our present and our future is secure in Jesus. Do you understand that? There will not be anything that happens in the world tomorrow that God does not already know. There'll be nothing that happens in your life tomorrow that catches God by surprise. You'll not go through a bad experience and God will go, oh, I didn't see that coming. No. God is the culmination, Jesus is the culmination of history. God sees the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. And God, because of that, we can place our trust, we can place ourselves in his sovereignty. We can trust that our future is secure because Jesus is the culmination of history. That's point one of Paul's message. Point two is this. Not only is Jesus the culmination of history, but Jesus, secondly, is the fulfillment of prophecy. Paul felt it important in his sermon to drive home this point that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Paul understood Jesus as the very fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises that were yet to be fulfilled at the time that they were given. Now I'm going to shoot some up on your, something will come up on your screen and and here is just in the text, just in Paul's sermon. And this is a small sliver of the prophetic pie. Just in Paul's sermon, look at how he unfolds this truth. 
He talks in verse 23 about how Jesus will be David's offspring. That was prophesied in Jeremiah, fulfilled in Matthew. In verses 24, 25, he talked about how John the Baptist would prepare the way for Christ. That was prophesied in Isaiah, fulfilled in Luke's gospel. And then in verses 26, 27, 28, Paul talks about the death of Jesus. And then you take a step back and you look at all the prophecies about how Jesus would die. That the Old Testament prophesied that he'd be rejected by his own people. It was fulfilled. That he would be accused by false witnesses. It was fulfilled. That he would be silent to those accusations. It was fulfilled. There's a prophecy that says they will spit upon him and strike him. And that was fulfilled. There's a prophecy that predicts he would be crucified between two thieves. Sure enough, that was fulfilled. His hands and feet would be pierced. It was fulfilled. There's a prophecy that he would pray for his enemies. That was fulfilled. That his side would be pierced. And sure enough, it was fulfilled. Paul mentions how that uh, there was a prophecy that Jesus would be buried. That was prophesied in Isaiah, fulfilled in Matthew. That he would be raised from the dead, prophesied in Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 16, 10, fulfilled in Mark. All of those things Jesus fulfilled. And that is not even the tip of the iceberg. Now you go Why would Paul spend time in his sermon on this aspect of Jesus? What difference does this part of his sermon make in our lives today? Why is it important? I'm glad you ask. It's important for a couple of reasons. The fulfillment of prophecy teaches us that God and his word can be trusted. See, God had made all these promises and he fulfilled them in Jesus. I am not a fan of bumper sticker theology. You also need to be real careful. You got a bumper sticker, how you drive, as I found out this week. I got behind someone with that Jesus fish on there and I thought they were late to a meeting with him. I mean, that's, that's how bad they were going. But there's a bumper sticker out there and I've seen it on church signs too. And it says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Eh. The Hebrew word for that is hawkwash. <laughs> I can't tell you the Greek word in church, okay? You got to take that middle sentence out. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. <laughs> Doesn't matter if I believe it or not. Doesn't matter if I like it or not. If God said it, that settles it. If God makes a statement, it's said and done. It's not open to debate. God does not offer us suggestions. He gives us commands. God does not speak in in, in ambiguous terms. He speaks clearly and forcefully. He speaks in a way in which we can't understand. And when God says it, that is it. That settles it. And apologies if any of you have to go change a bumper sticker on your car today. That was not my intent. But you need to change it. Also, the other one you need to, while I'm preaching, uh, the other one that needs to be changed is God is my co-pilot. Okay? You don't want God to be your co-pilot because that means you still have your hand on the sticks. Now, the one to counter that is if God is your co-pilot, swap seats. But if you're the co-pilot and you swap seats, you're still the co-pilot. What the bumper sticker should say is get out of the co-pilot seat and let Jesus take the wheel. I make a great country song. 
sorry soapbox back to Paul's sermon. God said it, and that settles it. Joshua framed it like this in Joshua chapter 21. He said, not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All had came to pass. That's, gonna, that, that, that's true for them, and that's going to be true for us. God and his word can be trusted. But also the fulfillment of prophecy teaches us that Jesus is the only way for salvation. Jesus is the only way we can experience salvation. Because if you go back and look at those prophecies, no one else fulfills them except Jesus. He's the only one. And he's the only one who can provide us salvation. Paul's point then and his point for us now, you can entrust your life to God. You can trust Jesus for your salvation because what he speaks is true and he will do what he says. So Paul's point one is that Jesus is the culmination of history. His second point is that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. His third point is that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. This is Jesus according to Paul. He's the culmination of history. He's the fulfillment of prophecy and he is the Savior of sinners. In fact, because he's the culmination of history and because he is the fulfillment of prophecy, verse 38, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All oh, this salvation impacts every area of our life, and, and Paul, being a long-winded writer, and, and he had to kind of try to summarize and just kind of keep it down to, the, to some of the most important things, the, the impacts of this salvation. But Paul tells us that spiritually because of this salvation our sins are forgiven. That's what he said in verse 38. Through this man forgiveness of sins is, is proclaimed. We can be forgiven of our sins. The debt that we owe God because of our sin and the penalty the consequence of that debt that has been paid by Jesus so it is canceled for us. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Notice the psalmist didn't say as far as the north is from the south because eventually you get to a north pole unless you're a flat earther. Yeah, you get to the north pole or eventually you get to the south pole. But you go east and west, you never reach your death. You'll just start going in circles if you go east and west. And, and the, 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 the writer of the psalm says that's how far God is from. There's never an end to how, uh, how we can understand that God removes our sin from us. But practically, he tells us in verse 39, we are free from the burden of the law. You see, instead of having to earn God's love and acceptance, you can receive it. Did you hear that statement? Instead of having to earn the love and acceptance of God. You can simply receive it. Instead of working in a vain attempt to compel God to accept you, you can rest in His grace, love, and forgiveness. 
You can know that he is ready to accept you just as you are. And he can do a work in you that then allows the work to be done through you. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. You are a sinner. Is he your Savior? Notice how Paul wraps it up. He wraps up his sermon by saying in verse 40 and 41, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. That's a quote of Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5. And that's a warning to those who might reject God's offer of grace. You see, God is doing a work in our days through Jesus Christ. And it's a work that's hard to believe because it's a work full of God's grace. Because of His grace, Jesus is the culmination of history. We will all stand before Him one day. I'll stand before him as my Savior because there's therefore now no condemnation for me. Not because I've done anything other than just receive what Jesus offered me. And you can receive that today. Because of his grace, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. And there are still things that Jesus has promised to do that he has yet to do. But you can mark it down, he's going to do it. And one of those things includes his return to this earth to judge sin as well as sinners. Because of his grace, Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. So that when I stand before him, I have absolutely no fear. No fear. I really don't. The idea of me standing before God, if today is my last day of me standing before God, doesn't bother me one bit. And it's not because I'm a pastor. And it's not because I'm perfect, because I'm not. The reason I have no fear is because of what the Apostle Paul promised in Romans chapter 8. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm in Christ Jesus. And that means when I stand before him, there is no condemnation because he took it for me. There is no separation because he closed the gap forever. He did that for me, and here's the great news. He can do that for you. If there's ever been a time in your life when you've confessed your sins to Jesus and as best you know how, repented of those sins and received the salvation he's offering to you today. You can receive that salvation today. You can walk out of this room knowing that Jesus is the culmination of your history. That your future is tied up and secure in Jesus. You can leave today knowing that Jesus is going to fulfill those prophecies, those promises 
to where when you stand before him, there is no condemnation. And you can leave here today having a Savior, Jesus. Don't leave this room today without embracing this Jesus. This is Jesus according to Paul. Who is Jesus according to you? That's the question you must answer this morning. Would you bow with me as we prepare to pray? I'm going to pray after I pray. We're going to have a time of commitment. Whatever the Holy Spirit has placed upon your heart today, if you've got questions about what it means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, we want to answer those questions. If you're ready at this moment to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, we will get you with someone today who will help you through that process. I don't know what God has placed upon your heart today, but I would simply ask that whatever table he set before you, that you put your yes on that table and leave here today following Jesus. Father, I thank you that Jesus is the culmination of history. That when it's all said and done, it is all truly about him. I'm thankful that he fulfilled those prophecies, which makes him the only one who has the ability to forgive our sins. And I thank you that he's the savior of sinners. I, I praise you that many years ago he saved me from myself and from my sins. And even though I still sin today, even though I'm not perfect today, I am clothed in the perfect love of the heavenly father because of the work of the son and through the ministry of the spirit. Whatever we need to do today to honor you, father, may we take that step in Jesus' good name. Music